Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and thank you for joining us for a very special episode of Pete and Gary's Military History. There are a number of really important anniversaries coming up throughout April and May, so we thought, what better time to revisit some episodes we've done in the past to tie in with these key anniversaries? So please enjoy this special bonus episode of Pete and Gary's Military History. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans about their experience of war. Join me on a journey through the pages of history. Welcome to Peter Hart's Military History. Hello, and welcome to Peter Hart's Military History. Uh, and this, this, this week, uh, I and my good friend Gary Bain, the eye candy of eye candies, uh, we will be recording uh, Second Battle of Krithia. Uh, which uh, which is in early May 1915. And I'm really looking forward to this one because it's about Gallipoli and everyone knows that's my favourite. Yeah, morning, Pete. I think uh, for the benefit of the listeners, we should say that uh, during the current coronavirus crisis, we're actually recording this remotely. So I had the pleasure of uh, observing you through video conferencing and you seem to have had a bit of work done at your house. Um, You're coming to me live from uh, the dungeons that you've just (laughs) recently had fully equipped. Yes, yes. Well, you you need these things. Uh, uh, the way my children behave, you have to have some way of restraint, you know. Yeah. That's it's I interesting. Think. I can see your, your wide and varied book collection, but what stands out most, I can see Jutland by you, <laughs> Fire and Movement by you. Why, why do you have so, so many of your own books, Pete? I, I have them because, as you well know, I can't remember a thing I've bloody written. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> so I, when, I thought you were the only person who actually bought them. I'm certainly one of the few to have read them. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, good morning. So we're talking about the Second Battle of Krithia. So I'll kick off if I can and demonstrate my complete ignorance to begin with. Um, what's the First Battle of Krithia? Yeah, we skipped one, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> first Battle of Krithia is uh, a sort of encounter battle on the uh, 28th of uh, April. What about they landed? They've uh, they've taken the ground above the beaches, and then they move forward uh, on the twenty eighth with a you know with the objectives, the usual objectives of uh, taking Achibab and the rest of it. You know, um, it, it doesn't go well. It's an encounter battle. They they don't get very far forward because they, they, they guess who they encounter? The Turkish. Yes, that's right. They encounter the Turks who who shoot them. And uh, the, 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 the attack breaks down. Perhaps we'll come back and do a podcast on it in a couple of years' time. It's not a major battle, although if we do a podcast, I'll be telling them it is, you know. Uh, and so the second battle, and then the next thing that happens is there's a mass of Turkish counterattacks. Uh, the main one is on the night of the 1st of May. And they hit a couple of battalions of, uh, of the 29th Division who memorably run away for a while, but then counterattack, which is fair enough. And most of all, they hit the French 1st Division, which is on the right of the line. Uh, so that's next to the Dardanelles Straits, as opposed to the Adriatic on the other side, because they're advancing along a peninsula. And can I point out that you started that conversation with that it was the usual objectives? I mean, how, how telling is that? Yes, that, that is a bit of a sign, Gary, that things aren't going wrong, that things are going wrong. Uh, the objectives, as on the landing, uh, originally the landing objective, thank you for 
prompting me here because I'd forgotten. But the effort is the, the dominating hill that dominates the whole Hellas Peninsula uh, called Achibaba. That was the first day objective, and it's always the objective from then on. The real objective, the second day objective from the original landings, is the Khalid Bahia Plateau. Uh, and once they've got that, they dominate the narrows, and on the third day, the fleet could go through. So uh, they never get to any of those. They never get to Achibaba. So from now on, the objectives are always either the village of Krithia, which is uh, unprepossessing, which is slightly more polite than last time, I think I mentioned it, village, uh, uh, on the way to uh, uh, Achibaba Hill. So, you know, that's the objectives. And is uh, Khalid Bahia what our good friend Belen refers to as that big bastard? <laughs> How rude of Belen. I can't believe he'd say things like that. Belen is uh, the best Gallipoli guide. Uh, well, the best young and virile Gallipoli guide, I think we put it. There is. There is thank a, you for that. <laughs> there is a couple of older guides who uh, 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 who are... Uh, a brilliant, but uh, he's our, our guide and we love him. Anyway, um, uh, so, so where are we? What are we going to talk so about? Second, uh, second Krithia. So who planned it, first of all? Who, who planned the attack? Well, it's, it's basically uh, planned uh, uh, by, by Hamilton, who gives the orders to, so that's General Sir Ian Hamilton, who commands some, uh, the uh, Mediterranean Expeditionary Force. And he 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 gives his commands essentially to uh, 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 Major General Aylmer Hunter Weston, uh, who is a controversial figure who will be returning to uh, later on. Uh, he was uh, he'd been very rapidly promoted. He was a colonel before the war, promoted to brigadier, did well as a brigadier on the Western Front. Uh, some quite innovative things. He always rode a motorcycle. He thought that was a quicker way of getting around than a horse, which is a sign that. You know something about him. He did well uh, crossing the bridge at the um, at the uh, the Ain because he realised as an engineer that it would bear their weight, the the, the men crossing, and he done well. Uh, but we're coming back to him. Uh, so, uh, but he was the man who prov- who did most of the planning. Yeah. Uh, we ought to talk about some of the difficulties he was facing. Do you not think? Because because this is yeah. one of the things. Yeah. Uh, so we've both been to Hellis. Uh, so what sort of problems? Did he encounter? Well, let, 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 let's let's well uh, let's talk about the terrain first because this yeah. is quite interesting. Now you can't. I've got a map of Hellas in front of me. Hello, map. Uh, but I've also got my and this is going to you're going to think something rude here. I've got my right hand right in front of me, and if you put your right hand out in front of you, it is a map of Gallipoli because although it's not mad terrain like Anzac it is quite interestingly split up and it's split up by a, a number of gullies and spurs so if you put your your right hand in front of you Achibaba is your basically where the bone of your uh, uh, of your what that wrist that's what that's called uh that's actually that, think of that as Achibaba and then in front of you you have uh the the, the uh, a, a series of uh, uh ridge uh, small uh, spurs and uh, gullies so if you take them from the right you have gully spur that's your little finger the gap between them is gully ravine the next finger is fir tree spur then you have krithia nulla krithia spur achibaba nulla kerev spur and then the gap between your thumb and your, your, your forefinger is uh, is is uh, Kerev's dare, which is a massive. You've seen it, Gary. You've been down it, and actually, due to my brilliant guiding, you've climbed out of it. I think. Uh, in, uh, Did it was lovely. Yeah, lovely. Yes, that's not what people say when I say up there. <laughs> and I told you before, I hate Spurs. <laughs> yes, you have said that as an Arsenal fan. You do hate Spurs. Yeah, just to explain for anybody Australian who doesn't actually know who Spurs are. Mind you, we don't know any Australian t- teams' names, do we? They're probably called the Tigers, probably Wanderers, Tigers, Sausages. Yeah. That, that sort of name. Anyway, yeah. so the back of your hand is a map, or you can look. We will load a map of the uh, the objectives on uh, on t- internet. Uh, is that your right hand? Yes, it is. Sorry, we've got a video link, so we can yeah, see. Yeah, I'm having a look, and, and clearly my map's in 3D. <laughs> well that's it it's a 3d map now there is so that's there is a problem because if you're advancing can you imagine as if you're advancing up these gullies then 
they dislocate you. It means that it's difficult. If you're in one of the, the valleys, it's uh, the, the nullers, it's difficult to see what's going on. You've got to, it's difficult to maintain a steady rate of advance. It's also, it enables the Turks to counterattack either down a spur or a valley. And there's not much you can do about it. it it's quite difficult ground. It's not impossible like Anzac, but it's difficult. Now, um, the other what thing... What were the we'll, Turkish defensive positions like? Because presumably they, they weren't just sitting there allowing us to merrily climb our way up these spurs. Well, uh, they, they, they're, they're about halfway up. So they're about a mile in front of Krithia and they have some dug trenches, some, uh, but, but a lot of it is improvised at this stage. So they're, they're, they're shallow trenches or they're using natural features, the edges of woods, that kind of thing. Or uh, on the uh, the right, uh, on Gully Spur, they're, uh, they, they've got uh, Y Beach, above Y Beach. It's a natural defensive position. We talked about Y Beach. This is yeah. why it would have been useful to have it. The reason they didn't have it is because the Turks took it off them. Uh, and let me get this out there very early because we've, you know, when we did uh, V Beach, there, there's the debate about the machine guns. Were there machine gun posts around Hellis at this time for Second Crithia? Yes, that uh, the the they the, the, they moved up their own and they had a, a set of German machine guns off off the warships, taken off the warships with German uh, German crews. So now there are machine guns. So the whole thing's got worse. The, the other thing that, uh, that Hunter Weston and Hamilton had to bear in mind was that uh, their troops were, were in a terrible state. So what did they have ashore? They had the 29th Division, and they're pretty exhausted and started to be a little bit demoralized. They've been fighting, if you think of it, almost continuously since the landings on the 25th. And they hadn't exactly had a good night's sleep before that, had they? So they were tired, and they were, they were getting near the end of their resources. The Royal Naval Division, which had no artillery, was split up. It was inexperienced, and they didn't know what they were doing. The old arse and elbow routine is, is, is you know, they didn't know their arse from their elbow. And uh, they, 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 they were in a bad state. They were split up, mostly, most of them at this stage attached to the French. The French 1st Division had had terrible casualties and was calling for uh, reinforcements. The French 2nd Division wouldn't arrive until the day of the attack, which was the 6th of May. And, it, you know, it, the Turks had been reinforced. Instead of just having one battalion, that was all that was there on the 25th of April, they now had the oh, best part of 31 battalions. Which, uh, it works out at about 20,000 frontline troops. They'd lost a lot of men in the the attacks to drive us into the sea on the first night of the first of May, so it's all difficult. And carry on. And, yeah, sorry, and, sorry. I just need to ask, <laughs> and I'm going to phrase this delicately, but there was a very poor view of Johnny Turk, for want of a better word, and their fighting capabilities on the 25th of April. Had that view changed, the Turk was a very good soldier, and had that been realised, uh, I think in part. Uh, they make this mistake time and time again of underestimating the Turks. The Turks are dreadful in attack. They're brave and courageous. They're a bit like we are. They just charge, you know, um, shouting to Allah. We shout for God, whichever God, you know, they shout for Allah. Equally useful, I think, in attack. In other words, they get mown down. In defence, though, the Turks were much better than us, I think. They're really good. Uh, they're, they're absolutely determined. And the reason they're better is they're tougher. Uh, and they're defending their homeland. Thank you. Great point. Yeah. And so, you know, um, Hamilton knew that it would only get worse. There's 20,000 there. It's going to be 30, 40. It's, it, you know, the Turks are going to feed troops in. So speed is essential. But will he have enough reinforcements? Because his troops are in trouble. And it's always this thing at Gallipoli. Can you attack? You know, if you don't attack the Turks get stronger. If you wait for reinforcements, the Turks have got really strong. This is going on all the time. Uh, and so what he does is swallows his pride a bit and he calls for the 42nd Division. They're a fantastic bunch. I love them. They're my second favourite division. They're, they're East Lancashire Division and they're territorials. They've been spending their time uh, training in Egypt since the start of the war. Uh, training hadn't been of much relevance to real warfare. Uh, I suppose a lot of them have got VD. <laughs> Oh, I'm not supposed to say that, am I? <laughs> oh, well. Um, too late. But too late. It's gone. The moment's passed. The, the, the punters won't remember I said that, will they? 
when I say punters, it is free. So, <laughs> um, so uh, uh, they uh, they were being uh, sent in. So the one two fifth brigade, which is part forty second division, would arrive uh, on the, on the first day of the second battle of Crithy, which is sixth of May. Now, Kitchener had made it very clear that Gallipoli was to be conducted with minimum forces. And here's Hamilton very early on asking for reinforcements. Absolutely. And he'd already asked for the Indians as well, a brigade of Indians. Uh, So, I mean, it's clear that force generation, which is a crucial part of any operation, had been ignored. They didn't have enough troops and they weren't the right sort of troops. Uh, That's because the best troops are on the Western Front, as well they should be. Uh, anyway, uh, one thing I've got, uh, I've got a nice quote from a chap called Lieutenant uh, George Horridge from the first fifth Lancashire Fusiliers. And it's a lovely quote. I love George Horridge. He was, uh, I turned up to interview him when I interviewed him. I was young and foolish then. I'd been out drinking in Liverpool till the early hours. Arrived at uh, Bury where he lived. You know, his, his house was, I think, Lake Hill, Bury. And uh, he, he said, uh, Hello, young man. He looked at me and said, I know what you need. <laughs> he's recognised I've got a hangover. He gave me a glass of that yellow liqueur. What's it called? Uh, avocado or something. Anyway, it was horrible. You chew well, it. Avocado. 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 You chew it. And I remember drinking this and hair of the dog doesn't work for me. I just felt worse. Uh, anyway, he said this. On arrival off, uh, I can't do the accent, but on arrival off Cape Helles in daylight, it dawned on one more forcible that this was it. Everyone wonders what will happen when one actually arrives at the war. Will it be horrible? Will one be afraid? Will one be able to carry on out one's duty? Will one be killed or maimed or perhaps only mildly wounded? And that's what's in every soldier's mind before a battle. We've, we've had this before. Um, so um, uh, the, 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 Hamilton had also arranged for the New Zealand Brigade and the 2nd Australian Brigade to be moved down from uh, Hellas, but they they wouldn't be there in time, uh, really, uh, to, to to join in the initial attack. Now the plans he made, Hunter Weston made these plans, and uh, they're completely unrealistic, you know. And one of the I'm sure Hunter Weston realised this, but he's a can-do kind of general. Uh, this is not a good thing. Uh, he's over optimistic, and basically the French would advance to capture the Kerevs there, looking at your hand. That's the gap between uh, your thumb and your forefinger. Uh, And then it would act as a pivot while the British line pivoted on that and moved forward towards the village of Krithia and the hill of Yazi Tepe, which is fundamentally where the knuckle of your little finger is. (laughs) And I think the role of the RMD was to actually be that pivot on the day, wasn't it? They they were the pivot between the French. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's it. Uh, now, they, just we for didn't... the benefit of the listeners, this is over the 6th, 7th and 8th of May, ultimately, isn't yeah, it? We, yeah, uh, first day, well, it's meant to be one day. It's meant to be the 6th, and they're meant to take Krithia, and then next day take uh, Achibaba, and, and right. then they have to take Kalibi, and then the fleet goes through, etc. Tea and buttered scones for everybody. Uh, <laughs> um, so, uh, um, now, the one problem is they still don't know there's two more problems. They don't know where the Turkish positions are, so it's an advance to contact, which is the worst sort of battle, in my view. It's arguable attacking sometimes when the, the trenches are really good. But if you don't know where they are, it's a painful business. And we also still had very few guns ashore, and naval gunfire is largely ineffective, especially if people are in the gullies. And um, because I know that you like doing this so much, uh, who was in command of the French? Uh, Damard. Uh, oh, you can uh, say that one. Yeah, I can say that. I've got this first time. General Damard, who'd worked well with us in France, had been appointed. And he did work pretty well with Hunter Weston Hamilton. Uh, and he, he would did. need to, given that plan. You know, the, the, the communication with the French is going to be essential. Yep, they've got to advance up uh, uh, Kerev's spur, which is your your forefinger, and then take the uh, so t- and capture the Kerev's air gully, and well, it's basically take the high ground uh, to your knuckle on your forefinger. Now um, they start a bombard. They're going to attack at eleven all along the line. No subtlety. They're going to attack at eleven, and the bombardment uh, st- starts at ten thirty. Now everybody's late starting off because the orders haven't got through properly. Uh, now, I've got, I, I'm going to read a French quote first, because do you know what? I think it's important. 
you know, that we reference and look at the French. And this is uh, Lieutenant Henry Fuel, 52nd Battery, 30th Regiment. And he says this, In perfect order, our troops shook themselves out and set out to climb up the long spur that separated them from their enemies. Uh, they, they advanced us on exercise. Our brave troops, no gaps in the ranks, punctuated by flashes of bayonets and the blue glint of rifles reflecting the rays of the midday sun. You would think they were on a training ground. But what is there to say? This wall of steel stops, hurls itself at an obstacle that it can't breach, hesitates, immobile for an instant. Then all the geometric lines fall apart. Groups running right, left, thrown into confusion. All the while, Turkish machine guns rattling away, tearing at the air, ceaselessly firing into a wall of palpitating flesh. Wow. And uh, the point is, you notice they always mention machine guns, and there were machine guns, but it's as much, if not more, rifle fire. And you mentioned right before that that there was a a barrage scheduled before uh, the attack. Uh, Forgive me, I may be wrong here, but I think, wasn't it uh, contemporaneous to the shell shortage that was being reported on the Western Front? So it... Did they have enough guns, enough ammunition for that sort of bombardment? Of course they didn't. And that's the stupidity of, of trying to do Gallipoli at the same time as the Western Front. Yes, there's a shell shortage at the Western Front. We're, we're, trying to, we're fighting battles uh, uh, around the, the Nerve Chapelle area, Festibur, the rest of it. Uh, we're completely running short of ammunition, and we haven't got much ammunition here. The bombardment, it would be polite to call it desultory. So why wasn't one or other of the fronts given priority? I mean, I would suggest that the Western Front should have been given priority and just holding in Gallipoli. You're there, so just hold it. Why, why did nobody actually say, this is the priority? Uh, they did. They said the Western Front's a priority, but people at Gallipoli wouldn't have it. And this goes on for the rest of the campaign, in particular Hamilton. People always blame Hunter Weston, but in my view, and I like Hamilton actually as a person, whereas I think nobody likes Hunter Weston as a person, but Hamilton is is the one who's just sees only opportunities and doesn't see the difficulties. He, you know, he always thinks that, you know, just give me another division, two divisions, and I'll do the job. Anyway, the, so the French make some ground on the right, going up care of Spur, but not in the end that much ground and on their right it that the hood battalion part of a the second naval brigade which is attached to it's a sort of composite brigade which is attached to the french they're not meant to really move but they do and here joe murray takes up the story now joe you know joe murray uh, i've 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 been obsessed with him all my life i read his book uh it's here next to me gallipoli as i saw it when i was about 11 i was a strange child um and uh, i um you were going to say something there. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and then I, inter- I had the pleasure of interviewing him in about 1983, four, and he did uh, so 21 hours. And you can hear all of it on the Imperial War Museum website. Anyway, Joe Murray said in his impenetrable Geordie accent, he spoke very fast. Uh, he's advancing, and he's advancing towards places we've been, so the White House, the Brown House. Uh, and he's advancing along Achibaba Nullah, which is the gully to the... Uh, just just to the, uh, well, effectively north, but it's uh, between your first and second finger uh, in, in your map that I've created for you. He said, and Murray said this, there's no sign of the French. They early on lost touch with the French. French. It was a beautiful morning. Uh, we got to a farmhouse, what was left of them, knocked about but serviceable. We were lying alongside the corner of a vineyard, a bush hedge, three or four foot high, a little ditch on the side. There's a big gap about 12 foot wide. We had to rush along the front of the house and go through this gap. Only four people got through. We had to climb over the dead and the wounded. We got about 10 yards in front and down we went. They didn't know where the enemy was. You know, I'm, I'm you know, this is me, not him. <laughs> it's all me, but you know what I mean. Uh, and... They, they, they were under increasingly heavy fire. And he was with, he found himself with three friends. Um, and he, he gives them names. The names he that I'm going to use and he uses are not real. He changed the names because their relatives were still alive when he did this, uh, when he did his book back in the early 60s. And <clears throat> he goes on. We crawled up more or less line abreast. That's the three, his three friends and him. But the bullets were hitting the sand, spraying us, hitting our packs. How about another dash? Off we went. Another 15 yards. 
yards. One drops. Everybody drops. We got down again. We decided to go a little bit further, and all four got up together. Yates was in front, and all of a sudden he bent down. He'd been shot in the stomach, maybe the testicles, but he was dancing around like a cat on hot bricks, fell down on the ground. As soon as we got near him, he got up and rushed like hell at the Turks, and bang, down altogether. Out for the count. Young Horton, he was the first to get to Yates, and, and he got hold of him and sort of pushed him to see what was wrong, when a bullet struck him dead centre of the brow, went right through his head and took a bit out of my knuckle. Poor old Horton. He kept crying for his mother. I could see him now, hear him now at this very moment. He said he was 18, but I don't think he was 16, never mind 18. He was such a frail young laddie. And I remember Murray telling me that. He was blind. He, he had uh, gaps in his vision. He could just see through a little channel, like through a telescope. But he, he was getting increasingly blind. And he, he, I asked him about his memory. He said it was like a cinema show. He could see it in his head. And when he was telling me about that, I could, I, you know, his voice, you could see he was reliving. He was quite upset. And it is upsetting, you know, this kind of stuff. And that demonstrates that things started to go wrong very quickly between the R&D and the French. And actually, that's critical. Maintaining contact with the French is absolutely critical. And it goes wrong straight away. Well, when they're going to be the pivot, you know, if you think of your elbow, they are their elbow joints. So, you know, the, 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 from your tip finger, tips of your finger, that's the Adriatic. To your elbow, that's Kerov's there. That's meant to go in a pivot towards uh, the Yazi Tepe. They don't know where the Turks are. Why, why is advance to contact so difficult? It, it's because they don't, you don't know where they are. They're, they're in a ditch ahead of you. You're in the open. They open fire. And before you know where you are, you're dead or not dead. And there's a lot of references in the quotes, uh, particularly, you know, I, I revisited uh, Defeat at Gallipoli by your good self and, uh, and then he said Nigel Kennedy, Nigel Steele. And, um, you know, it, it actually, there's lots of quotes about, uh, you know, fire from all directions and not being aware of where the Turks are. That's and it. that demonstrates fully the difficulties of advanced contact. It does. It, it, it's bloody awful. And uh, the, 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 uh, the Royal Naval Division, well, the, the, the Composite Brigade, you know, failed to keep in touch with the French and they staggered to a stop. In fact, they, they retreat a couple. They, they get about 400 yards. On the left, they get shot to bits from the positions above Y Beach. So, you know, that's on the gully spur. And in the end, nobody gets further than about 400 yards, it, you know, which is bugger all. And correct me if I'm wrong, I think there are two machine gun posts above Y Beach at this stage, aren't there? Reportedly. Uh, I'm well, never I, did say, I did say correct me if I'm wrong. No, no, <laughs> I'm good. They always say there's two. Um, but we have... Exp Basically, this is standard position. You know what you have on your side. Yeah. But what you imagine the other side have is always a little bit of speculation. Uh, and uh, so I'm always slightly dodgy about that. Uh, sadly, there are not enough Turkish sources yet, and, and that's one of the great things in Gallipoli studies, and Harvey Broadbent and others have been working on the Turkish archives, and the more stuff that comes out of that, the better. So the, that's the 6th of May. The total failure is how I would sum it up. 7th of May, uh, Hamilton, he speaks to Hunter Weston and Demard, and then he orders them to do it again. Now, is oh, that wait, Hunter... Sorry. You mean exactly the same objectives? Exactly the same objectives and plan. Now, Hunter Weston always gets the clatter for this. And he says, yes, he does. It can do general. But, you know, who's ordering it? That's all I'd say. Hamilton. Uh, by this time, they've had a bit of reinforcements. They've got a brigade of the 2nd French Division and the 127th Brigade of the 42nd Division. Previously, only the 125th had arrived. They'd attacked on the left and nothing had happened. They'd got nowhere. Experienced soldiers? <laughs> These are the territorials of 42nd Division. No, this is their first time in action. Uh, great, great point. And uh, let's have a look at one of them. Because on 0945, on 7th of May, the bombardment begins again. Less than ever. Bugger all, you know, mm. in any way as a bombardment. Uh, I don't think on the Western Front you'd have even noticed it. And let's go to uh, Lieutenant Horridge, George Horridge, and he's advancing on Gully Spur. That is uh, your little finger in our map of Gallipoli, uh, your hand in front of you. Uh, and he says this, 
We were told we would advance by platoons in extended order. I was the last platoon, but one in the advance. As a distance between Gully Ravine and the sea is some 300 yards. I think it's a bit more than that, but there you are. I had to extend my platoon in two lines, 30 men in each line at 10 paces interval. The scrub was so thick, it was impossible to keep in touch with all the men, and one merely had to blow the whistle and hope that everyone, everybody advanced. You had to follow the people in front of you. When you found the line in front, you lay down. You lay down. When you, they got up, you got up and continued the line, the advance. And so we got started. There are a few hisses of bullets. As we went further, these got more and more. We came to a trench. Then we advanced still further. The amount of rifle fire we were under seemed to get bigger still. I began to lose control of the platoon because I simply couldn't see them in the scrub. All I could do was blow my whistle, beep, beep, and hope the, the NCOs were doing their job. Eventually, we got to one trench behind the front line. Next to me was an old soldier called Collinson. We got out of the trench, and we had to go out the double because the fire was very heavy. The bullets were hissing round. Swish, 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 swish. We ran halfway, and then we got behind a mound. After a minute or so's rest, I said to Collinson, I said, look, we've got to go on. And off we set again. I wasn't too bad a runner. And I outstripped Collinson, and we eventually leapt into the front line trench. I'm sorry to say that Collinson, in the last 10 yards, got hit through the chest or stomach. We got him in, but he died later. Now, the point I want to make to you is that all of this advance and all the trenches they cross, they're not trenches so much as ditches, is behind the British front line. And what does this remind you of? Well, it's a bit like uh, the Newfoundland Regiment on the Somme, uh, 1st of July. Who gets slaughtered advancing up to the British front line? Yeah, and it's the same thing. They're not attacking; they're getting to the front line. Now, if you're ready and it can have a bash, it's all on one page. This yeah. is the second quote uh, from Horridge, and uh, uh, yeah. So when they finally reach the front line, they're actually uh, helped by the by the troops that have held uh, the positions overnight. In, in one size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. The subsequent attack. And second Lieutenant George Horridge uh, of the first fifth Lancashire Fusiliers says, uh, we got out of the top of this trench. The fellows were firing from the parapet presumably at the Turks, who I hadn't seen hidden in the bush. But the fire was very, very heavy. We didn't get more than 10 or 15 yards before it was quite obvious that if we didn't lie down, we were just going to be hit. We lay down. You could see the bullets cutting the grass in places. I said to Captain Milnes, Sydney, do you think we should stop here? What about going down to the cliff, he said. Yes, I think perhaps we'd better. It's no good stopping here. We can't go on against this fire. You go first. So I got up and ran to the cliff edge. A fellow called Hudson followed me and he was hit in the neck. What happened to the others, I really don't know. We got under the cover cover of the cliff edge, got Hudson down to the shore. 
a naval cutter came and gave us some water, which had some rum in, which tasted very nice. <laughs> they took Hudson off and we just waited for orders because what we had to do then didn't concern me as a second lieutenant. Now, that's quite interesting. The water thing's very interesting. I was, you know, you and I have both been there. It's very hot. It's very dry at uh, this time of the year. Water is very, very important. And it is. It strikes me that they're bringing water in from the ships. So at that stage, they clearly hadn't sorted out the wells, which we've both seen. Um, and it's really telling that, you know, they're getting down onto the beach before he gets any water. That's not a beach, by the way. That's just water. It, you know, it, it's the, the edge of cliffs and it just drops to a sort of thing. But the point is exactly the same. Yeah, we didn't know where the wells were. Uh, we, so we're not locals. One of the big problems is the Turks have put bodies down the wells. Uh, and if they hadn't, we thought they had, you know, <laughs> You know, it, it's that business. Uh, and um, water, yes. Can, can, I mean, you know, we have we, when we go for a walk, we have a, a four-bottle walk, a two-bottle walk, a six-bottle yeah. walk, uh, and then the legendary boot walk, <laughs> which is an eight-bottle walk, and you probably still run out. But these people had more like one bottle per day. You know, these are the little you know, problems. Anyway, uh, this is Horridge's quote, which uh, I think gives an idea of, uh, of, of what had happened and why advanced contact in, in scrub and rough ground is difficult. He said this, my platoon had stopped at various places on the way. Some at the trenches, some hadn't gone forward. I just didn't know where any of them were. When the battalion was eventually formed up in the dark to go back to uh, the back, of course, they all began to appear. I thought they must have got hurt, killed or injured. It turned out in the end I'd lost three killed and three wounded out of 60, which is, after all, decimation. And that's interesting because he used decimation in the proper term, a one in ten, one in as 10. opposed to the, oh, they were all slaughtered. They were decimated. Uh, he's using it in the Roman sense of one in ten. Mm. Now, the rest of the line we're not going to deal with. It's all the same. You know, there's hardly any advance at all. 200 yards at most, really. And that was, funnily enough, towards uh, on, on the left, where they make some progress moving towards uh, the top of Y Beach, which, you know, the, it's a ravine. You know, uh, that's all they make. And do you and know after what? the war, the Turks don't even know that that's a, a general attack, do they? they no, it's, you know, you try your best to attack them all day that day and the Turks don't really notice. And that, <laughs> I think, sums up the, the fighting on that day. And so what do you think Hamilton does now? I'm slightly concerned here because I know that it's over three days. So <laughs> he has another go, presumably. And, and that's it. I mean, it, it's very difficult for Hamilton. I mean, you've got to look at his difficulties. Uh, they've got hardly any artillery ammunition. They, they gather what they've got for one last effort. They still haven't reached the Turkish forward posts, never mind whatever the main defence line was, which we're always vague as to where it is. Um, the Turks had got another two days of digging behind them because we hadn't really involved many of their troops. So a lot of them were just digging the main trenches. Uh, and uh, the, 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 it was getting worse and worse on, on, on the French front because, you know, uh, where, where they, the, the Turks were digging redoubts all along Kerev Spur. And we've been to some of them, the Quadrilateral, the Harico, and then there's another, I've forgotten the name of the other one because I've got no memory. Uh, but it, it, it's getting worse and worse and worse. But Hamilton still manages to convince himself that it's worth another effort. I think this is criminal myself. But on the other hand, look at what else could he do? Evacuate? Give up? You know, what, what else could he do? What do you think he should have done? What, what could he have done? Well, I, I personally think there was an argument for evacuation prior to Second Krithia. It's a personal view. Um, you know, they had plenty of artillery there. They had 105 uh, guns and 12 heavies, I think, amongst them. Just no ammunition. I, and I, I agree with you. I think it's bordering on criminal at this point to continue to uh, waste lives for no discernible gain at all. But on the other hand, they'd have lost all the guns. Because remember, they wouldn't have been able to do the evacuation as they did in December and January. Uh, they'd have lost most of the guns. It would have been a crippling defeat against a Muslim power. Uh, 
how would that affect India and Egypt? I mean, they never even thought of evacuation. Uh, they thought yeah. of it on the first night at Anzac, but since then it's never been mentioned. It's, yeah. But, you know, realistically, I mean, it, this was probably their best chance before Second Crithia to get away with it. But no, first day of Second Crithia, second day of Crithia, second, second Crithia, that's a bit of a tongue twister. And now the third day of Second Crithia. And, and the ammunition diminishing all the time, of course. Well, they, they, they decide to fire off pretty well everything they've got in support of, of, of these two. Well, there's basically two attacks, <clears throat> two attacks on this day. So what's going to happen? Well, they bring ashore the New Zealand Brigade and that, that joins the 29th Division and, uh, and that puts itself on, uh, on uh, 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 Fir Tree Spur, which on your map on the back of your hand is the second figure from the right. So it's next to your little finger. That's Fir Tree Spur. It's uh, there's Gully Ravine to the left of it as you advance forward, and Crithianulla to the right of it. Uh, and what else is happening? The Austra- Second Australian Brigade are moving up behind the Composite Naval Brigade, and they're they're basically on Crithia Spur, which is your big finger, your third finger. And the French are involved all the time. Yes, yeah, the, the, uh, the French. Are, the French for a while. Well, we haven't. I mean, they're just attacking and and having a lot of trouble. Uh, they're, 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 Hamilton thinks they've got. He thinks they're on the high ground above Kerib's dead, but they're not. Uh, so he orders them to consolidate, uh, and and they're they're just meant to push across Kerib's dead. Well, they haven't even got to Kerib's dead, so that's nonsense. The main thrust of the advance is poor old 29th Division. Uh, they, they're going to attempt once more this wheeling, same wheel, pivoting on the French. You know, at high ground above Kerib's dead, pivoted across to Yezi Tepe. And then that would be the first day. Second day, take uh, Achibaba. Third day, kill it by here. And uh, as usual, fleet go through. Uh, and this time, I think we'll have beer and Skittles. You know, it, it's the same plan, except for they were not having crumpets. They're going to have beer this time. It, it's, it's farcical, in my view, as a, as a plan. And what's, how are they communicating these plans? You know, it, it, there's not a lot of time between the 6th and the 7th and the 7th to the 8th of May. I know I'm stating the obvious there. But how are they getting these plans communicated to the people on the ground? The staff work is abysmal. I'm not sure it's anyone's fault. Uh, there's a shortage of trained staff officers. They'd all rushed off to, uh, to join their units at the start of the war. This is only early in 15, so they haven't really got a new supply of staff officers. And this, of course, is a, a second campaign. This is, you know, so the Western Front has priority. Um, <clears throat> so Hamilton... Uh, so Hunter Weston gives his a warning order at uh, 25 past 11 on the, the night of 7th of May. Uh, you know, so, you know, uh, but that's only a warning order. But warning what? Uh, the formal written orders are issued by 29th Division, his divisional headquarters, two hours before the planned attack. So 8.30 in the morning of the 8th. Uh, if you look at, say, the New Zealand Brigade, who are now going to attack on Fir Tree Spur, Colonel Francis Johnson doesn't even confer with the battle, battalion commanders till nine o'clock. And by the time his four commanding officers got back to their battalions, the bombardment has already started. So what time for planning do you think that gives them? Well, none at all. None I at mean, all. that's just ridiculous. So, 15-minute bombardment. What damage do you think that did to Turkish positions when we don't know where they are? I think I think the big clue there is we don't know where they are. So the question is, what are you actually firing at? You're just firing into ground, are you, basically? Yeah, I mean, you'll absolutely. hit something occasionally, but, you know. So 10.30, over the top again. Now I'm going to concentrate on the New Zealanders this time because the the, 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 the tale of their attacks on Fir Tree Spur on the 8th is quite quite dramatic. And uh, Private Cecil Malthus, he wrote a very a, a good book. And he's with the Canterbury Battalion. Guess where they came from? Uh, New Zealand. Curses. Hopefully. <laughs> yes. And he says this. Um, they get the order. New Zealanders prepare to advance. Where on earth were the enemy? Uh, and what were our objectives? Look at that, Gary. Do you see what I mean? They've got yeah. like, the slightest bloody clue what they're doing. Hastily, we threw off our packs. Were they ready? No. And piled them in heaps, which were promptly looted by the Irishman. That's the Irishman of 29th Division. And a slur on those gallant gentlemen, I'm sure. It was only in the act of springing over the parapet that we're told of another line of British still lying 100 yards ahead of us. Same thing. Sometimes you wonder how many times these things can be repeated in one bloody campaign. 
We sprinted the distance, all abreast in fine style. And thanks to our Spartans, it was only in the last few yards that the enemy woke up and loosed his fire. The tragedy of it was that from the moment he re- that from that moment he remained awake. In other words, they knew that they were going to emerge from this front line and attack them. And we were left with the certainty in our next advance of having to face a living stream of lead. Um, so uh, the real attack, you know, it's time. They, they go over again at 10.30. That's when they make their real attack because uh, that's just advanced into the front line. So are you going to be Cecil Malthus this time? Yes. So, uh, and, and I want you to oh, think Oh, he goes about, over the page. <laughs> yeah, I want you to think about the language here and some of the, the images that uh, uh, Cecil Malthus is, is painting because I, I did read this. Uh, very quickly while you were speaking and and it's really quite telling so private cecil malthus canterbury battalion new zealand brigade for 200 yards we sprinted thinking oddly how beautiful the poppies and daisies were then from sheer exhaustion we rushed to ground in a slight depression and lay there panting now the storm was let loose and increased every moment in fury until a splashing spurting shower of lead was falling like rain on a pond. Hugging the ground in frantic terror, we began to dig blindly with our puny entrenching tools. But soon the four men nearest me were lying, one dead, two with broken legs, and the other badly wounded in the shoulder. A sledgehammer blow on the foot made me turn with a feeling of positive relief that I had met my fate, but it was a mere graze and hardly bled. Another bullet passed through my coat, and a third ripped along two feet of my rifle sling. Then the wounded man on my right got a bullet through the head that ended his troubles. And still, without remission, the air was full of hissing bullets and screaming shells. Well, it sounds terrible. It's uh, awful. I mean, you know, there's the, as, as, as we've said before, there's a place for humour, uh, and this isn't it. Um, uh, I don't, you, can, I, you can imagine the frantic attempts to just, you know, dig a little scrape because you haven't got to dig a big trench to, to get below, uh, you know, the, the danger. And you can imagine they're frantically trying to, to, to dig a little into the ground. And we've both seen those entrenching tools and yeah. how useless they are. I mean, they're, they're just little small uh, mixed combined shovel and, and <laughs> mini pick. They're, but they're, they're only tiny. They're very difficult. So uh, they they get to, they dig some shallow pits and, and get some they, they, you know as you say well that would uh, be some relief I think from the from the uh, the shells and uh, the bullets that are flying around. Now the, again they make about two hundred yards games uh, gains and you know, hundred yards in places, but by now they start to get this thing they're not level. So across the gully ravine that's the, 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 the immediately to their left. Uh, wow. They haven't got as far, so they're getting fired at from the flank. So they're not just getting fired at from the front. They're getting fired at from the flank as well. Uh, And it's clear the attack has failed. Now, at this point, Hamilton is already ashore, and he's put himself on Hunter Western Hill, Hill 114. I think it's that one. I had a sudden sudden moment of doubt. Uh, and, uh, and, And he was watching the battle there, and now he intervenes. Now, Hamilton... Is, is, is one of those generals who think uh, an army is like a bullet fired from a gun. You point it, you give it directions, but then after that, it carries its own, you know, it's under the command of the people, you know. But he intervenes and orders another attack. <laughs> Sorry, I know I laugh, mm. but uh, it's, it's not funny. And well, you're laughing used... because of, of how ludicrous it is, because it is ludicrous. I think it's ludicrous. Uh, you know, try, try. If at first you don't succeed, try, try, try again. This is a fourth try because it's two in two in the last day. Uh, he's going to order an attack. He orders the attack at 1600 for an attack at 1730. Now that gives it exactly an hour and a half to organise it. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure that was... They were going to fire every bit of ammunition they could spare uh, for 15 minutes. I'm sorry I'm laughing, but, you know. And uh, the, the 87th Brigade would attack again up Gully Spur. That's on the right. That's the one between uh, the sea and Gully Ravine. Um, the New Zealand Brigade was to try try again and attack up Fir Tree Spur, and they would capture Crithia, would they, buggery? The 2nd Australian Brigade was to advance from its reserve position 
and up uh, Crithius, uh, which is your middle finger, uh, as far as, you know, right up as far as possible towards Crithia. Um, the French were to renew their attack of Kerev Spur, and it, it, I, well, I'm speechless, which is a blessing, but not so good in a, a, a podcast, I suspect. I'm incredibly ambitious. At 17.15 in the evening, it's going to get dark. That is incredibly ambitious. It's wish fulfillment, something. Now, uh, I've got, we've got a quote. I think you could be Private Frank Brent because uh, okay. he's a character. Can you do an Australian accent? No. Nope. No. Nope. Uh, I won't even it. attempt it. So, so who are you? I'm Private Frank Brent of the 6th Victoria Battalion, 2nd Brigade, Australian Division. It was indescribable. The noise, the dust, you just couldn't hear each other speak. That went on for about a quarter of an hour. Then everything was as silent as the blessed grave, and that was the time we had to hop out. The barrage had been so heavy that we thought, well, this is going to be a cakewalk. There's nothing to stop us. Now, I want to make one point very clear. That is because he is totally inexperienced at being at artillery fire and what it, a bombardment is like. This, I, 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 you can say, you weren't there, Pete. Well, I wasn't there. I've heard from a, that there's a lot of other people talk about this bombardment. And yes, it was the biggest bombardment so far. On the Western Front, it wouldn't have counted for anything. And indeed, when troops from Gallipoli went to the Western Front, they went, I nearly said a rude word, they, they, could, yes, they couldn't believe it. And presumably the Navy were lending support as well. As best they could, but flat trajectory, they can only... Yeah. And, and same problem, where are the Turks then? Mm. We don't know where they are really, so, you know... It's, 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 yeah, they're trying. Now, 1730, they go over the top. Uh, 87th Brigade fail, just can't get anywhere attacking towards uh, Y Beach. Uh, y Beach, you know, they just go anywhere. Gully Ravine, New Zealanders have another go. Canterbury Battalion have another go. And Captain Frank Gresson, he'd been in reserve, he'd been in a reserve company. And he gives this just standard attack. You, how many times do we have to hear this sort of? thing i had covered about 75 yards at my top speed when my legs suddenly went from under me as if struck by a hammer and i fell over and lay still among the daisies after a few seconds perceiving that i was not dead but had merely been shot through both legs i, I mean i don't know you know i raised my head cautiously and looked about me the ground all round me was plentifully dotted with khaki clad figures for the most part ominously still Though here and there, there was to be seen one endeavouring to crawl to the trenches in front. Just in front lay the monster trench. Again, they're advancing to the front line. And as I looked, one of the men in it beckoned to me with his finger. I made, I, I made ready to act on it by unfastening my equipment and allowing it to fall off. As I was unable to get up, shot in both legs, remember, I had no alternative but to shuffle along as best I could. And using this mode of progression, I reached the monster trench and lay there in great pain but sheltered from the constant stream of bullets. I mean, again, so he's coming up. He's the reserve company. He suffers. This is all suffered advancing to the existing front line. Tragic, in my view. But now let's turn to the Australians. They're attacking on Crithia Spur. On your map, in front of your right hand, uh, back of your right hand, uh, it's the middle big finger. Uh, and uh, it's bare. It's completely bare. No scrub at all. It's not like that now. So, because now it's got vegetation, uh, woods. It's got a lot of stuff on it now. But then it was completely bare. And all the mistakes are made again. No coherent planning. No organisation. They're advancing under fire before they even get to the front line. And and, and it it's just the same. And let's can you do Frank Brent? You did him so well last time. Can you do this one? Uh, Private Frank Brent, 6th Victoria Battalion, 2nd Brigade, 1st Australian Division. You could see your mates going down right and left. You were face to face with a stark realisation that this was the end of it. That was the thought that was with you the whole time. Despite the fact that you couldn't see a Turk, he was pelting us with everything he'd got from all corners. The marvel to me was how the dickens he was able to do it after the barrage that had fallen on him. I copped my packet. And as I lay down, I said, thank Christ for that. I, I think I, that, that, that was a, a recording done for the BBC Great War series. Uh, you know, the original where that, yeah. that quote came from. And I think that's powerful. Uh, I think it's powerful. And 
when you think how scared people must have been, I mean, when you see how scared people are of the, of the coronavirus, and with good reason, but you see that that that, that kills the, the death. You know, we may or may not die of it. But the point is, these people are facing imminent death. Then that second, that minute, you know, and almost no way out. And I, I think when you see how cowardly we are now, you, you just think how did these people do it this is uh, sergeant cecil eves he's with 7th victoria battalion uh, obviously same brigade he said well we charged but and i love this this is this is advanced to car contact well we charged but what we charged goodness only knows i, I never ran so much in my life then the machine guns started that stopped our charging we advanced by short rushes to within striking distance but were too decimated that's the wrong use of the word to complete the attack. Captain Heron and I happened to be alongside each other, and there was a wretched Turk enfilading us with stray shots. It was dark by this time. Heron and I took turns with the rifle and entrenching tool until Heron got an enfilading bullet over the right eye. I then had to dig for the two of us. We got down to cover without any further mishap. Why the Turks never counterattacked that night and wiped a lot of us out, God alone knows. Think of it, a little band of men, not more than 300, struck right out in front of the army with nothing to the right or left. They'd, they got about 500 yards forward and formed a line about in front of Redoubt Cemetery. Now, if you, if you know where Gallipoli, we, we've been there, Gary. Yeah. And, and I know uh, Matt McLachlan, sorry, Matt McLaughlin, I do apologise, Matt, uh, takes tours there and he's got a wonderful piece, or he used to have a wonderful talk about the whole Australian thing on the internet, which is worth looking at. So they consolidate. That charge, I just I, I saw the charge of the light brigade the other day. Uh, it was on telly, you know, and we've got a bit more time in our hands than usual. And it, it, I think it's a pretty dreadful film in some ways. Um, um, lots of tight trousers, I noticed. Uh, but uh, this, this, this charge up Crithia Spur lasts longer and they sustain more casualties than they ever lost in the charge of the light brigade. A thousand of the... Uh, of the uh, second brigade or second Australian brigades, 2000 men were casualties. That's 50% casualties. It's awful. Uh, and now, do you know what? The Turkish main battle positions start to be in sight, 500 yards ahead, roughly, you know, uh, where the Krithianulla bifurcates. Uh, well, is that the right word? I think it is. Um, on the right, the French have captured one of, they capture La Redoubt Boucher. But in front of them, there's still the Harico and the Quadrilateral. They're nowhere near Kerabstair, you know, uh, and the battle's over. In three days, the Allies have lost 6,500 men, and the maximum gain is just about 600 yards. Do you think it's worth it? No. And what more is there to say? Next day, 9th of uh, May, is the time for people to think. Uh, and do you think the Allied positions had improved? No, I mean, we have the advantage. We've been there. We've seen the terrain. Um, and in some cases, I would argue it's actually worse um, because they're more exposed now. Um, we've been to the quadrilateral, both cleared and uncleared. And, you know, the, the French there would have been completely exposed to artillery. So, uh, no, I don't think it's improved at all. Yeah, the quadrilateral and the... Uh, the, the, the I mean, they're not as de developed as would be. The quadrilateral and the harico. They said it was the shape of a haricot bean. Um, I don't where they got that. That's a baked bean. Uh, those quadrilaterals still lay ahead of them. And they, from, they were they're, they're, they're directing mm. machine gun fire, rifle fire. If you're on the Kerev Spur, you're being fired at not only from them, but from the artillery, as you mentioned, but also from artillery to their right. Because, of course, the French have the Turkish batteries the other side. <laughs> yeah, the we were very kind to the French, weren't we? Yeah, have the position of honour, lads. You, <laughs> you have the right of the line, the position of honour. Oh, uh, you might find us a bit, you know, because there's all the Turkish batteries firing at them from the, across the straits. Uh, so Ian Hamilton writes back to Kitchener. And I, I can imagine it, that you almost feel like dear dad, because he has a very obsequious relationship. So, dear dad, he doesn't really say dear dad, but he says, the result of the operation has been failure, as, as my objective remains unachieved. 
The fortifications and their machine guns were too scientific and too strongly held to be rushed. Although I had every available man in today, in today, sorry, yeah. So you mean everybody was put to the task. Uh, he says, our troops have done all that flesh and blood can do against semi-permanent works, and they are not able to carry them. More and more munitions will be needed to do so. I fear that this is a very unpalatable conclusion, but I can see no way out of it. Kitcher was disappointed. What had you? What did you say? Kitchener said about the whole expedition. Well, he said that you know it should be done with minimum forces. I, you know, I. Why didn't he sack him? You know, at this point, why didn't he sack Sir Ian Hamilton? He'd failed, and not only had he failed, he'd overcommitted, and he'd gone against. I mean, Kitchener was very clear, very clear, and now Hamilton's wasted, frankly. Uh, what troops were available? It, I don't know why I didn't sack him. But I, I think I suspect one reason is there's no no easy alternative in mind. And remember, Hamilton is the the Germans considered him the most experienced general in the world. He'd fought lots of campaigns. I mean, he'd been uh, he'd been the British observer at the uh, at, at the uh, Japanese Russian War. He'd been he'd been in the Boer War. He'd been in the wars against the Zulus. He'd been in wars against everybody. He's always fighting people, and he, he you know. But guess what? Twenty four hours later, Hamilton's optimistic again, and this is why I don't like him. It's all wish fulfillment. Uh, he he wants to maintain a steady pre- pressure against Turks and then make, uh, renew the full scale offensive. This will be the Battle of the. Third Battle of Crithy, which we'll deal with later. Uh, and that's on the 4th of June. <laughs> and he says, if two fresh divisions organised as a corps could be spared me, I could push on from this end and from Gabatepa with good prospect of success. Otherwise, I'm afraid it will degenerate into trench warfare with its resultant slowness. You know, and you can imagine what Kitchener thinks, you know. And he can't meet it at full, but he's on 10th of May, he says, I'm sending you the 52nd Scottish Division, Highland Division. Um, uh, no, not Highland. Uh, Lowl- it's Lowland, sorry. Uh, 52nd Division, anyway. Scottish, definitely Scots. Uh, and it's, it's too late. They've already got trenches all across. And by the time they get there, by the time of the 4th of June, it's full entrenchments. It's not, you know improvised yeah. defences it's three lines of trenches in my notes against that decision to send the 52nd division i've written the word why you know it, it's I, <laughs> I i can't understand kitchener even considering uh, meeting his request and and it's going ahead of the story but when, when they get there they're slaughtered you know they're, they're fed into the attack piecemeal uh, and they are slaughtered uh, it's a dreadful story, Gallipoli, and they, they keep playing catch up. They say, "Oh, we've got to, we've got to launch an attack because if we don't, the Turks will get stronger." But the Turks are already too strong for them. That's the reality. They never had a chance. Uh, that it, I, I, I despair at the can-do attitude of Hunter Wesson and the can-do and the lunacy of, of Hamilton. The, you know, I blame Hamilton more than Hunter Wesson myself. Uh, and so, you know, in reality following well probably earlier than second Crithia, but following second Crithia, had the Gallipoli campaign effectively already been lost yes definitely I, I think it had been lost before I, th- I don't think it ever had a chance of success uh, given the strength of the Turks uh, and the competence of the both their leaders and and the troops and the natural configuration of the ground at both Hellas and Anzac uh, but uh, a lot of men are dying, and so there they are. And we haven't mentioned one, one thing that's going to start, and it, it, it had already started, disease. And that, we, we'll have a separate podcast on conditions at Gallipoli, but disease, uh, dysentery in particular, spread by the flies from latrines and from everything. And from then on, as much as you send troops, by the time you've sent them, the troops that are already there are suffering so much sickness that they, that they, they just top up the numbers back to where they were. Uh, and all the while, up on Achibaba, the artillery observers are watching. The Turks are in their lines. They're digging their trenches. They're digging the quadrilateral. They're digging uh, the, the Harico. They're making. They're digging lines above Kerab's there. They're digging lines across the peninsula. Uh, they're digging lines here, there, and every bloody where. The, the, the campaign's doomed. 
All right. Well, thank you very much, Peter. And uh, I look forward to our next uh, video podcast, uh, which uh, uh, I, I, I wait with bated breath. I, th- I think you'll find they're not videos. <laughs> no, we're, we're videoing. Yeah, uh, we're sorry. videoing. <laughs> but the punters don't get to see me and you picking our noses. Anyway, thank you very much. And I hope you've all enjoyed that podcast. Thank you, Gary. Cheers, mate. Cheers, Peter. Take care. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?